Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. Thanks for joining me. Over on QueerSerial.com or on my Instagram at QueerSerial, you can explore the complete episode guide, listen to bonus episodes, buy Queer History merch, explore my archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary currently in production. Your subscription supports all of my ongoing LGBTQ history projects. There are links to everything in the episode notes or at QueerSerial.com. This is Season 5 of Queer Serial, a standalone miniseries. Heads up, this season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955. A panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. The child is raised to be a narcissist, someone who thinks, well, I can change my gender. He will grow up confused, weak, and reliant on the people in charge of the state. Talk from your own experience about just how dangerous what Fox and Tucker Carlson are doing really is. First of all, that show was completely insane. More than 400 bills have been introduced around the country attacking trans youth, from threatening to criminalize health care, to investigating families for affirming their children, to banning trans youth from school activities, to prosecuting doctors who provide trans care. These bills represent a threat to trans survival. And the recently passed Don't Say Gay law that bans discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in elementary school. It's about parental choice, uh, not government mandate. The guy who wrote this legislation is charged with being a criminal. Facing decades in prison. Anti-equality extremists are basically looking to gain political points on the backs of a community that has already been demoralized and attacked. This needs to be illegal, and I'm introducing a bill called Protect Children's Innocence Act because these kids are too young to make these awful decisions. In Florida, Florida we're going to do what's right. What's right. We talk about the danger of the homosexual becoming a role model to our children. I believe that more than ever before that there are evil forces, even perhaps disguised as something good and good. on to save our children because the seed of sexual sickness that germinated in Dade County has already been transplanted by misguided liberals in the U.S. Congress. So the reason you wanted to be elected to high office is so you could recruit and convert every young adolescent. <laughs> One of the reasons being elected is I'm a, mo a role model to young gay people. Right. To young gay people. You see, you misturn things around like Students. you turn everything around. Well, what about a teacher who's a role model? I didn't say you're the one who keeps bringing up this phony recruitment. You know you're lying, and you talk about morality, and I question what is your real motive behind it, what is your real ambitions behind this, what are you really using this for, and stop this phony issue that you know is a okay. phony issue. Center
Tuesday, November 15, 1955. A young school teacher prepares for the day. Coffee brewing, bread in the toaster, pick up the paper off the porch. He sits down, begins eating his eggs, and looks at the statesman headline. Joe Moore held in Morrill's case. He drops his fork. Everybody knows Joe Moore. He's the vice president of Idaho First National Bank and a known businessman around town, married with a son. This teacher has heard about the rounding up of homosexual men, but Joe Moore? The Statesman newspaper explains, Last night, Joe Moore, 54, businessman, arrested on felony charges of committing an infamous crime against nature. Moore, long active in the Boise banking business, was taken into custody late last night by Sheriff Doc House after he had been called to the courthouse for interrogation. Blaine Evans, Ada County prosecutor, said the complaint against Moore has been based on a statement by a 17-year-old youth with a corroborating statement by a 15-year-old boy. The 15-year-old boy is Lee Gibson, who the police had also said accused Ralph Cooper, and Cooper was sentenced to life in the penitentiary in last week's episode. The prosecutor says to the statesman, our office will continue these investigations and will use every facility at our disposal to eliminate this despicable condition in the community. The young teacher realizes that this search for homosexuals isn't being investigated by a juvenile parole officer anymore. It's been taken over by the Ada County prosecutor, who is now out to show the city he's taking action against the so-called perverts. This isn't a cleanup. It's a witch hunt. Even though the teacher has only been with consenting adults, he knows the people of Boise won't be calm enough to understand the difference between a homosexual and a pedophile. A deviant is a deviant. The teacher leaves his eggs, toast, and coffee on the table, packs his bags, and leaves town for San Francisco. He doesn't even call the school to quit his job. In two days, a coworker will stop by to check on him and find his breakfast still on the table. His name will soon appear on the investigator's list. Boy, it's noisy out in Boise, Idaho. They come down from Butte, Montana. They come up from Santa Ana. They come all the way from San Antonio. They come in from Oklahoma, riding on a pin pony just to join that noisy Boise rodeo. Idaho, 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 Idaho. How they'll ever get in quiet, I don't know. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Episode 2, Boise Fairyland Parade. The people of Boise are, again, stunned by the arrest of Joe Moore. And that's not just dramatic heightening. In the documentary about the Boise sex panic, several people note that this was the arrest that blew the lid off the town. Some people begin to realize this is going to go too far. 
but most people believe prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans is a hero. However, men in Boise, gay or straight, begin to worry about talking to kids or even walking places together. It suddenly feels incriminating to be seen watching a football game in the park. Most men in Boise now won't even meet up to hang out together at home or play cars without a woman present in their group. No homo. The next day, Wednesday, November 16th, 1955, the statesman fans the flames again. This mess must be removed. The newspaper recaps the scandal so far. The decent foundations of the Boise community were jolted beyond description recently with the arrest of three local men on morals charges involving young boys. It did not seem possible that this community ever harbored homosexuals to ravage our youth. Yet it was true as confession of both men and young boys made disgustingly clear. The paper goes on. Monday night, Ada County's prosecuting attorney, Blaine Evans, revealed another arrest of the same sordid nature. There is not comfort in knowing that another of these arrests could be made, but there is great satisfaction in the realization that the prosecutor has made such an arrest. And there is additional comfort in his statement that he will use every facility at his command to continue these investigations and rid the community of this scourge. Those were the words the community wanted to hear. Those were the words the community required. The prosecutor faces no easy task. Tracking down this kind of criminal, obtaining the necessary evidence, and getting it to court is perhaps the most difficult of all law enforcement. But progress has been made. We are completely confident there will be more. It might not be a bad idea for Boise parents to keep an eye on the whereabouts of their offsprings. To date, a number of boys have been victimized by these perverts. The greatest tragedy of all is the fact that young boys so involved grow into manhood with the same inclinations of those who are called homosexuals. No matter what is required, this sordid mess must be removed from this community. Again, the editorial implies that it is Blaine Evans now leading the investigation, the prosecutor but doesn't mention that the statements made against the banker Joe Moore are noted as witnessed by the probation officer Emery Bess and the PI Howard Dice, hired by that unnamed client. Bess and Dice are off the case. So how long ago did the prosecutor obtain this statement against the banker? How long has this investigation been going on? Curiously, the statesman also leaves out the names of the accusers in both articles about the banker Joe Moore. If the people of Boise were to see that the accuser in this case is again Lee Gibson, would they wonder how the same teenage boy was the apparent victim of two different alleged sexual predators, a banker and a shoe repairman, who are unknown to each other? Could the people of Boise stomach the idea that Lee Gibson sought these men out. The very notion of discussing it, even right now. How could that even be possible, fathomable, to people who are still struggling to understand what a homosexual even is? Concepts like the closet, or sex work, or young people with a capacity for queerness, and the difference between these things, and sometimes their overlaps, 
learning about these complicated queer matters is low priority next to outrage and panic in the moment. Lee Gibson was a victim of a poor, uneducated, desperate society. And like the probation officer said, we've only scratched the surface. A decade later, putting this case back together, journalist John Garrisey searches through the available documents, but doesn't find how Lee Gibson came to be the victim of two separate men. However, he does find how the banker Joe Moore came to be the victim of the Boise gay panic. Lee Gibson's statement did not originally accuse Joe Moore. Joe's name was penciled into the statement over a scribbled-out name, Al Travelstead, owner of the Howdy Pardoner Diner. Police Chief James Brandon is the kind of local cop who hides in the stalls of the park bathroom waiting to catch grown men cruising each other. A pathetic job that many self-proclaimed heterosexual cops have held over the centuries. Chief Brandon hangs around the bus depot bathrooms too, and the YMCA. Chief Brandon considers his job to be a child molester catcher, But, of course, he's mostly just arresting consenting adults in encounters with other consenting adults. This is a common job in 1950s America on the local level and the federal level, as we discussed in Seasons 1 and 2 of Queer Serial. The federal government has agents whose job is specifically to look for and eliminate homosexuals from the workplace. We met a few of them on Queer Serial. People like Army counterintelligence agent William Fairchild. Fairchild interrogated homosexuals for the State Department and is well known for breaking up a so-called ring of homosexuals in the Air Force. Now, he's moving to Boise. Agent Fairchild is quietly moving into a rented house at 1019 North 16th Street on the north side of Boise. The rented house is paid for by the city, the prosecutor, and Ada County. Together, They've all hired William Fairchild. His 16th Street house is secretly set up as headquarters for the Boise Homosexual Investigation. 
The house has two entrances, one entrance reserved for suspects to be brought in. Agent Fairchild makes the space comfortable. He has a bedroom, and then the living room is where the questioning is held. There's always a fire burning in the fireplace, a couch, and seats for the witnesses, officers in plain clothes. There's a desk where Fairchild sits, and a chair for the suspected homosexual. Cigarettes and an ashtray, a telephone and a tape recorder, and a mirror, a small mirror on the desk pointed toward the person being questioned. An old interrogation tactic. Fairchild knows all the tricks, and he's spoken to enough homosexuals that he recognizes many of our codes, like wearing a red tie or a ring on the left pinky finger, or smoking Pall Mall cigarettes. The motto of that cigarette is wherever particular people congregate. Fairchild has learned a lot about the underground world of sexual deviance, but I will say some of his theories aren't quite accurate. For instance, Agent Fairchild believes that every ring of faggots has a queen, typically the richest of them, or the most important, or the prettiest one, according to Agent Fairchild. Fairchild is determined to find the Queen of Boise, the man who spread this perversion through town. He begins his interrogations and quickly picks up hundreds of names. All those names are expected to name more names. Many of them are naming people like Mel Durr, the theater star at the downtown Boise Hotel. Mel's friends tell him he better skip town. Quietly, under the panicked calls for morality, word spreads through the underground that the city has hired a queer catcher. Not everyone is thrilled about this choice of investigator, some upper-class lawyers and Boise businessmen aren't fans of Agent Fairchild. He once investigated a loan shark scam in Boise that left stockholders broke, but the company heads still made a profit. Those upper-class men were nicknamed the Boise Gang by Senator Glenn Taylor. <laughs> They're an elite group who hold a lot of economic power behind the scenes in Idaho. From their exclusive meetings and networking at the Arid Club in Boise, these aristocrats influence legislation, the courts, and banking and utility regulations across the state. They're powerful. The Boise Gang intends to slow down federal projects and urban renewal programs in Idaho. They want to stop out-of-state competitors from coming in to help Idaho's lack of competitive prices and lack of jobs. These men are financially comfortable, and they want to keep it that way. They don't want a federal agent snooping around their business again. Similarly, Boise City Hall was recently taken over by reform-minded progressives, and the Boise gang is not a fan of them either. This federal agent digging up their dirt again is risky, but they can't argue with the results of Agent Fairchild's investigation because it's shaking up their other enemy, City Council. The citizens of Boise are furious with the councilmen for allowing homosexuals to poison their town. 
The Boise gang actually thrives on this kind of chaos. Look over there, at the queers, not at us, driving your bills up and pushing resources out of state. And there's a big bonus for the Boise gang. With every name added to Agent Fairchild's list, he gets closer and closer to taking down the Boise gang's biggest enemy. Sheriff Doc House arrives at the 16th Street house with a man on the list who he picked up 200 miles out of town. Fairchild and the Boise PD question him for 12 hours. He signs a statement. They tell the man that this is just the beginning, that surprise arrests of Boise residents are planned for several men who recently skipped town to the West Coast. And now a word from our alternate sponsor, Pell-Mell Famous Cigarettes. There's news you'll remember in my Pell-Mell song. The flavor's delicious, so mild, never strong. Enjoy smoother smoking, it's just sweet enough. Get fresh little lip flavor in puff after puff. Pell-Mell, choose well. Smoke longer and finer and milder Pell-Mell. Now, a word from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects, like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my Queer History archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started in 2017 and all of my bonus episodes, the queer serial spinoff stories, forgotten fairy tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc, 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at QueerSerial.com slash episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series, lots of unique queer history-related items that make cute gifts, like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar, featured in season two, some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history. I have Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always from a note she wrote to Randy that's in her archive that I've been processing at the LGBT Center here in New York. My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested and also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at Queer Serial and at QueerSerial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. 
You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. Enjoy act two of this episode. Joe Moore, the banker, and Charles Brokaw, the freight line worker, are released on $2,500 bails. Benny Castle, the clothing store clerk, remains in jail. As the town's paranoia spreads, people are constantly wondering who is next on the cops' list today, skimming through the newspaper headlines. But the statesman suddenly tries to reverse the panic they caused, with an article headlined, Objective approach and intelligent plan are needed for solution of a serious social problem in Boise. The people of Boise read this article. The Boise community, face to face with a homosexual situation exposed to public retaliation, comes now to the time when shock and disgust must be replaced with calm and calculated analysis and consideration. Some homosexuals have been exposed, others are rumored due for exposure. One has gone to prison for a life term, others await court sentence or trial, yet none of these steps is in the right direction. None of them accomplishes the necessary correction. Most important, the victims, the young boys who have been involved, are left by the wayside for a future of considerable question. The community's wrath leapt into vigorous demands with the first arrest of homosexuals. Law enforcement was criticized both at city and county levels, private detective assignment had caused the first arrest and may cause more. To say that the city police administration, the sheriff, and the prosecutor are in an embarrassing and difficult situation is to put the matter mildly. Each of these agencies is functioning now in the direction of homosexuals, as are the courts. Public reaction generally is that something is being done, yet nothing in the way of remedy is even started. Homosexuals are not singular to this community, nor are they of recent vintage. We imagine they exist in every community in the country. They must have been around as long as the weakness of the human mind have been evident. Confessions by homosexuals invariably bring out the stark fact that these victims of a puzzling physical or mental quirk were themselves infected as young boys. There, the die was cast. They grew into manhood to infect other boys who, in turn, unless effective intervention follows, will travel the same path and carry the identical threat to the next generation of youth. Tragically, the scourge multiplies since one adult homosexual usually infects several boys. Those who are shocked at this kind of comment need only lift their head out of the sand and come face to face with one of society's greatest problems, the homosexual. There has to be the realization that he exists right here in Boise, and the most important admission has to be that the homosexual is not a criminal, and that the proper correction is not an indefinite sentence to the state penitentiary where the homosexual may do society more damage. There has to be a better system of correction than this one. The challenge in this community is to examine this problem objectively and to organize into one effective group every available informed and interested individual and agency to work toward an intelligent and effective battle against this evil. To us, there is greater importance in immediate aid for the young victims rather than the adult homosexual. Fortunately for Boise, there are now constructive steps being taken to organize for this part of this vital work. 
Who will start the coordinated effort to bring this problem to a fair and sensible level of control? We suggest a public meeting of our courts, our law enforcement officers, members of the legal profession, the medical society, the agencies serving youth, the parent-teacher associations, the state pardon board, and any and all other interested and connected groups. The program appears to be simple. Homosexuals must be sought out before they do more damage to youth, either by investigation of their past records or by appeal to their unbalanced minds. Psychiatric treatment should start wherever it will be accepted in order to work against further acts by homosexuals. Immediate plans must be made for the proper assistance to boys who have been victimized in order that they do not grow into manhood to become homosexuals. Otherwise, the community must admit that there is no problem with homosexuals and that there is no concern over enormous damage from their activities. No challenge has ever been as great as this one. And then wrapping up their very panicked call for calm, the statesman says, It is also in order to recall that no city or county law enforcement agency has either the funds or the personnel for a homosexual squad, and that well-known uniformed police officers cannot cope with this problem. Until there is public reaction to a degree that provides law enforcement with the facilities for policing homosexuals, all complaint is unfair and unjustified. There are many who can say, something must be done. Certainly we agree, we are not defending any homosexual or his acts. Instead, we hope for an objective approach to a serious social matter and an intelligent plan arranged and carried out which will minimize, if not completely eliminate, one of the most unfortunate instances in the long and honorable history of one of the most respectable small communities in the nation, the good city of Boise. Woof. In the statesman's previous coverage, they described homosexuals as criminals. Now they write that they are not criminals, but they are weak-minded and better solutions are needed than prison sentences. Their idea is a medical solution. One of the community's suggestions, reported on the same day on page 12 of the paper, is a committee for medical help. The Statesman reports that two weeks ago, an organization called the Youth Advisory Committee formed for the county's leading businessmen to find medical help and treatment for the hundred boys targeted by the homosexual ring. These businessmen are intending to appoint people to tasks like finding jobs for the young boys to fill their time and their wallets instead of other activities. The sheriff, Doc House, says many of these boys were delinquent with the homosexual men because they wanted cash. This youth advisory committee meets in the statesman newspaper offices, along with the sheriff and the prosecutor, Blaine Evans, and some ministers. These guys meet five or six times at the newspaper offices during November of 55, but nothing really comes of this committee idea to help the teenagers, and the meetings trail off. And right there was their chance to actually help the children. Thanksgiving Day, Thursday, November 24th, 1955. A light snow covers Boise. Families cook all day for the annual meal, discussing the morning's headline in The Statesman. Ada Prosecutor files four more morals charges. 
The grapevine through town becomes a complicated mess of accusations and assumptions and claiming, I knew it all along, or shocked admissions of, I had no idea he was queer. Today's arrests, 7 through 10 of the gay panic, are of a local store decorator, a liquor salesman, a hospital attendant, and a very prominent attorney. The statesman reports, The four men were arrested after investigations conducted by Evans' office, Police Chief James Brandon, and Sheriff C.L. House. There is now no mention of Probation Officer Emery Bess, who first broke this scandal, or of Private Detective Howard Dice, or even of the unnamed client who hired that detective. Also interesting, two of the accusers of these men in this roundup are adults. The same day, Thanksgiving, another headline announces, Idaho Aid to Deviates is Planned. The State Board of Health announced Wednesday it was setting up a mental health program to deal with medical and psychiatric aspects of sex offenses involving men and teenage boys. Dr. Dale Cornell, State Director of Preventative Mental Health Services, was named to head the board's mental health division temporarily, in addition to his present duties, pending appointment of a mental health director. Dr. Cornell said he received approval of necessary salaries to put the mental health program into effect. By coincidence, on this same day, an Idaho native returns home. Dr. John Butler and his wife Marjorie have been away in Europe for three years where he studied sexual deviation. Seeing this article about a mental health program to deal with homosexuals, Dr. Butler pulls some strings and will quickly be appointed as acting director of the Division of Mental Health. Dr. Butler is prepared to lead the charge and find out where Boise's problem is coming from. Families continue to panic and point fingers at their neighbors. At the Travelstead house, where owner of the Howdy Partner Diner, Al Travelstead, used to live before he skipped town to Mexico, his wife wakes to rocks being thrown at the windows and shots fired somewhere nearby. Alti, her eight-year-old son, still doesn't understand what's going on, where his father went, or why his mother can't stop crying. An otherwise perfect childhood falls apart as kids stop playing with Alti, and no one comes to eat at their restaurant or dance at their studio. Their businesses collapse under the weight of a gay rumor, seemingly confirmed by Al Travelstead's sudden disappearance. The mood is briefly lifted for the annual Fairyland Parade downtown, Saturday, November 26th, 1955. People from all over the city and from out of town line the street for holiday floats, the crowning of the Fairyland Queen, high school marching bands, and of course, Santa Claus. June Schmitz, the singer at the Les Bois, is watching the parade from the sidewalk when a friend runs up to her. She says, one of your friends is about to be picked up and questioned. June knows exactly who she's implying, and she runs to the Les Bois to use the ladies' room telephone. June calls her husband, 
and tells him to warn their friend. He's going to be picked up and taken to the sheriff. June's husband says he'll take care of it. She goes back to the parade, not really watching, nervously wondering if her husband will make it in time to warn their friend. A couple hours later, June gets word. Her husband and their friend went to see Sheriff Doc House, and he was let go. That night, June's friend and his wife arrive at the Schmidt's house for dinner. Sitting at the table, he keeps saying, I can't believe anyone would pick me up. I wouldn't think of such a thing. His wife keeps adding, he's not guilty. But no matter how much they persist, so will the rumors. Next week, a reporter, the gay underworld, and the scribbled out name. Okay, I'll leave it there for now. Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit QueerSerial.com or QueerSerial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spinoff stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy. Just visit the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts. You can also get all of those bonus episodes, plus Queer History Archive dives and exclusive behind-the-scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my Patreon now through Spotify. It's super easy. Just open Spotify and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows, and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. That Spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my Patreon. Or if you just want the bonus episodes, you can save a whole penny and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. By the way, the documentary I mentioned is basically a sequel project to Queer Serial. It's created by me and Jim Morrow at Viridian Coast Studios, and it's all about archiving Randy Wicker's gay forest gump of a life. And it's about his extended gay family, including Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history. The Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsha's materials with the LGBT Center Archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process, and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queerserial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash queerhistoryuplift or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Garrisey's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Back next week. Bye.
pleasure of smooth smoking. Get Pell Mell Famous Cigarettes. Outstanding. And they are mild. 